Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Rehumanized Podcast. Hello and welcome. I am here today with Beth Fox. Beth, introduce yourself. Hi, so my name is Beth. I am a um, graduate student. I am working on my second master's. Um, This one's in developmental psychology. I also have a master's in public health. um, And I currently work online as a college tutor, um, tutoring essay writing, research methods and statistics. um, And in my spare time, I try to speak out and um, do different things for advocacy for disability rights and um, supporting the right to life. Great. Um, how did you get sort of invested in that issue? The primary reason I got invested was because of my own personal backstory, which I think we're going to be getting into. Um, but the cause to defend the right to life from conception became a very personal issue for me early on. I also have multiple multiple physical disabilities. Um, I have very weak muscles, so I primarily use a wheelchair. I also have weak respiratory muscles, so I use a ventilator. And I am legally blind, so I have some functional vision, but not enough to like reprint or see details or anything like that. So because of that, um, disability rights also became a very, very just essential core part of my life. And as my condition has progressed, um, and a few years ago when my mom got sick, um, I also faced end of life decisions and issues head on. So there's three very strong overlapping areas in my life that have become very personal motivators for me. Great. Yeah, um, if our listeners do not know, Beth is one of the newest members of the Rehumanize board. Um, so she is now on board. And I knew I was getting something. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I was, I was saying earlier that I am so excited to have Beth on board because I think that just with your, you know, lived experiences, uh, you bring a lot to... Um, you know, our conference and the different projects that we do that, you know, as a core team of mostly able-bodied people, um, or at least able-bodied passing people, we sort of can miss. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really exciting. Um, So I'm happy to have you on board and that you're around to make me or so that I can make you do the podcast. Um, (laughs) Happy to do it. Always exciting. (laughs) How did we meet Beth? Uh, we met when we were both crazy youngsters <laughs> and decided to uh, pull an all-nighter in front of the sc- Supreme Court. court. I believe it was the whole woman versus... Um, Hellerstadt. Yes, yeah, I can never pronounce that one. Yeah. yeah, so we were waiting out um, before the... What's that called? The ruling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, before the ruling came out. Yeah. How long were you there the nights leading up to it as well? Or were you just there that first night or that last night? I was just there the last night. Okay, yeah, me too. Because I know that, um, because the way Supreme Court rulings work is that 
we know about when mm-hmm. the ruling's going to come down, but not exactly. So I know folks from SFLA um, and Margaret, who was our the other rehumanized intern at the time, mm-hmm. were there for like a week before every night staying over. And I was like, I'm busy that week. <laughs> Can't make it. And I actually was. Um, but so I rolled down that last night and overnight it was it was summertime. So it wasn't that bad, mm-hmm. but it was like intense I think and I was just thinking wow we weren't allowed to like even sit on the steps because that was considered the 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 court and we weren't allowed to like interfere with the court yeah so that was that was was interesting but it was there that you first shared some of your story with me um and I sort of wanted to get into that because if listeners don't know uh Holman's Health v. Hellerstadt if you can't tell from the title uh was about abortion um specifically abortion legislation that targeted um i don't know I, I, they were they were just trying to get like ambulatory clinic yeah. standards basically so that because abortion is a surgical procedure um they were basically trying to make abortion clinics have to follow the same um, health and safety standards as any mm-hmm. other outpatient surgery clinic um, specifically that they had to have hallways wide enough to get a wheelchair or a gurney through, mm-hmm. um, so that if there were a complication, they could safely get a woman out. Um, but apparently that's too <laughs> radical and yeah. promoting women's safety is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that being a really interesting, um, part of the whole case because it wasn't really directly about abortion. The other side was saying that, you know, we were targeting abortion mm-hmm. clinics to try to shut them down. Um, which, you know, and I mean, it, we were happy that that yeah, was going like, to be a yeah. consequence of it, but that was not the exactly. purpose of the, yeah. um, bill that was originally passed. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so while we were there overnight, a lot of discussion about abortion came up and you told me a bit about your story. Uh, do you want to get into that a little bit? Sort of beginning sure. of life. Yeah. Story. Um, so I am the youngest of two kids and my mom has always, always loved kids, and she, um, as soon as as soon as my parents got married, like my mom, my dad wanted to wait a couple years before they had kids, and my mom was like, "Nope, we're married. It's time. We're doing this." Um, and so they had my brother, and then they found out that they were having me, and they were super excited. But then my mom went in for what was supposed to be just a routine ultrasound. And they found out that I had stopped growing and developing. And at that point, I was about four to five weeks behind on development, which um, right in that second trimester, that's, that's a big gap. And so at the ultrasound, the they decided they were going to run some more tests. They were concerned that I had spina bifida, and they did an amniocentesis and some more tests to try to figure out what was going on. And they found out that I did not have spina bifida, um, but they couldn't figure out what was going on. So the doctors at that point told my mom that I most likely wouldn't survive to term, um, and that if I somehow did manage to survive, I would have such severe disabilities that I wouldn't have a life worth living. And they told her that her most merciful option would be to terminate the pregnancy. And fortunately for me, um, my mom had the courage and the morals to know that that was not a choice that she could make. 
And so she carried out the rest of the pregnancy with very mixed emotions because she was still ecstatic to be having a little girl, but she was also terrified that she might not ever get to know me. Even though I do now, from at least from a medical standpoint, have what would be considered severe disabilities, I usually don't look at it that way because it's just part of my life. But my life is very much worth living and I'm the only one who gets to make that judgment call. Um, and so I'm so passionate about the right to life because especially in what people often consider the hard cases because fetal anomaly um, and even terminal or fatal fetal anomalies, it, it, like that's so often an exception that even people who claim to be pro-life are willing to make. And it just, it's so personal to me because I was, I was that exception. Mm -hmm. um, I was not expected to survive. And so it just, everybody, everybody has something to contribute. And so it's been a very personal thing for me. And I'm grateful every day that my mom had the strength to walk out of there. Yeah, great. Yeah, I think I think about you and some of my other friends with um, severe disabilities, quote unquote, um, when discussion of late term abortion comes up, mm -hmm. because I think that, you know, obviously, <coughs> you're fine. Sorry. No, you're fine. Um, obviously, we're pro-life. Every abortion is an act of violence, whether mm -hmm. it's um, an RU486 that mm -hmm. targets just a weeks old embryo or um, we're talking about a practically full term baby. Mm -hmm. um, so we think they're all pretty, pretty equally evil, I think. However, I think for a lot of people, uh, the later in pregnancy, the more, you know, you see a baby and mm -hmm. you are less likely to condone abortion at that stage. But so often that all goes out the window if the child is disabled. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't, I don't know. I think I, I really empathize with these stories of um, mothers and parents who talk about this hard decision. But at the same time, like I empathize with my friends who mm -hmm. are alive today or even if they, um, you know, they didn't make it to their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, they were still a person. And I just think it's so... So sad that, you know, we come up with all of these, you know, medicalized terms to describe someone having a disability. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just really sad. So do you know if your mother um, had sort of one doctor that she was able to go to to help out with? Because um, I know I've heard of other people, um, friends who have had children with fatal fetal anomalies. Um that they've had a hard time finding a doctor who will even help them after they've chosen not mm -hmm. to terminate. Um, so my mom and I never really talked about the details of that too much. Um, she just always made it very clear to me that she never went back to that doctor that recommended the termination. It didn't sound like she had a hard time, but my mom was also one that wouldn't necessarily have been like, she always tried to minimize her own. It wasn't even until um, my late teens, early 20s that she really began to 
um, open up to me about what happened. I found out in my early teen years about the, the recommendation for abortion. And I had noticed around that time as well that there were lots of hard copy ultrasounds and um, baby pictures of my brother, but there were very few of me until about 18 months. Wow. And my mom originally was just like, oh, it's because you were the second child. We were busy. We had our hands full. Um, and that was definitely part of it because between having a toddler, my brother was two when I was born, um, and then an infant with, with medical needs especially, she did absolutely have her hands full. She was also pretty almost a full-time babysitter for my two cousins who were six months younger than my brother and six months older than me. So, um, so yeah, she definitely had her hands full. But as I got older and we talked about it more, I found out that another aspect that really went into that was that it wasn't really until after my first year that they really, really realized that I was here and I wasn't going anywhere anytime yeah. soon. Um, and so my mom finally, when I was in my early 20s, admitted that like she was just, she was so scared that she was just going to lose me and then just have these painful reminders everywhere. And it wasn't until even actually af after she passed, I found my baby book, which had <laughs> my like information from my birth, like my length, weight, my baby footprints and one ultrasound, which we believe is probably, if it's not from the appointment when she found out, it's it's from that time period. It's right in that second trimester. And I, I cherish that picture so much now. And it's just, for me, when I see that, I look at that picture and that's when I know like my mom saw me and she saw my value and she loved me no matter what that meant or no matter how hard or how scary that was going to be. Like in my, in my mind, I know my mom probably loved me long before I was even conceived, but in my mind, that's, I can look at that picture and that's the first time that like my mom chose me there. Um, and it would have been perfectly legal. It would have been medically advised. She had all of the like reasons you can think of um, to choose abortion. But I look at that ultrasound and I know that that's when my mom knew and valued my life and decided that she was going to be my mom no matter what. Thank you, Beth, for sharing that. Um, so now I want to sort of talk about after birth, mm -hmm. you know, after birth till now. Okay. Um, because obviously um, for a lot of children, um, getting past birth means they have legal rights and they're yeah. good to go. You're fine uh, unless you, you lucky know, them. Um, you know, unless you're an enemy combatant or if you commit a crime and end up on death row. Mm -hmm. Most of us are pretty much safe in that we have our rights protected. Mm -hmm. um, but for people with disabilities, um, there's a lot of barriers. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, what have you found to be sort of barriers, but also um, stepping off points for living with <laughs> your various conditions? So um, in my early childhood, 
I really just did not understand that I was disabled. That wasn't a term we used in my house. Um, and it just, my parents would tell me that like, I didn't see very well. Um, and I mean, I have glasses that are like, yeah, they're super thick. Yeah. Like <laughs> three quarters of an inch thick or something. We'll post like that. a picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and with that, I, I'm still legally blind. Like my best corrected vision is 21,000, which basically means it's something that's 20 feet away. I see it with the clarity of something that's a thousand feet away. Um, wow. so that's my best vision. Um, and so, but I didn't understand that when I was a kid. And so I just kind of thought the way I was, was the way everybody else was. Um, and I always had issues with balance and coordination. I was constantly falling, tripping. Um, and like my mom always joked that I was just a really klutzy child. Um, and (laughs) it wasn't really until I was a teenager again that I started like realizing this isn't, this isn't normal. (laughs) Um, This isn't typical. Um, And at that point, um, we started realizing that there was probably something neurological going on. Um, But we didn't even really know where to start. Um, And so I um, had a bunch of different neurological tests and stuff done, um, which I mean, that's what every teenager wants um, <laughs> lots of medical tests. That's, yeah. that's how you become the popular kid in your high school. Not. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And so I guess I, I think I'm, I'm really grateful that in those early years that I, I didn't understand um, because, or at least that I didn't look at it as a disability. I, I, because I didn't know that I was disabled, I did not, know that I had that excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I never had that excuse. And so no matter how difficult things were, I would do everything I could to get through, um, which meant that my teachers didn't realize how bad my vision was until fourth grade, because in the earlier grades, A, the, the print was larger because little kid books are written with larger print. Um, and I also just have a really good aud- audiographic memory. And so I would like listen and memorize things. Um, and the only time I would get in trouble at school when we would do the like popcorn reading where like somebody would just read an unspecified amount and yeah. then call someone's name and they had to pick up there because I never knew where we were because I would just listen. I couldn't track in the book. And so when we would do that style of reading, I always got in trouble for not paying attention, even though, but then my teachers would be like flabbergasted because they would ask me what had just happened and I'd be able to give them a super detailed summary. And they're like, what's going on? (laughs) Um, I just can't see. (laughs) So actually in in fourth grade, um, in the public schools, every year they have you do like vision and hearing screenings. Um, And at this point in my life, I had... There was only a couple different varieties of the like letter charts. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life, I had pretty much memorized at least down to like a, a normal level. <laughs> so in like <laughs> that's so counterproductive. <laughs> You're just trying to pass the test. Exactly. I thought that was my job. <laughs> um, but 
when I was in fourth grade, I started a new school and they didn't use letters um, because they used the same chart with like the kindergartners and preschoolers who might not know their letters yet. So they used arrows that were pointing in different directions. Gotcha. And so I got up and um, the school nurse who was doing the screening, she was like, which way are the arrows pointing? And I was like, what arrows? <laughs> and they ended up calling my, like sending me to the principal's office and calling my mom because they thought that I was just like being hardheaded and like blowing it off. And so like, I got in trouble for that. And they called my mom and my mom was like, well, she's legally blind. She probably can't see them. And they were wait, what? <laughs> um, and so that's when I started getting accommodations in school, um, which did not help my social appeal <laughs> at all. Um, Cause I started like, I would wear like a little monocular, which was basically like a little handheld telescope around my neck. Um, and then I had this um, basically a closed circuit television. So it was a, like a kind of like a computer monitor that then had like a little camera that I would point at the board to bring it to me in front of my desk. And so I rolled that around in a rolling suitcase. Um, oh, and so I was, yeah, I was very much a walking target at school socially. <laughs> um, but because of that, I was able to take all of that effort that I had learned to put into my schooling and instead of just putting it into like getting by, I was able to actually put that into academics. Um, and so I think, I think that a lot of my like educational rigor and the fact that I've done so well in academia, I think a lot of that comes from the fact that at a very early age, like I learned to invest a lot of energy because that's just what was required of me. Um, and so then when the acts of reading and doing things was eased, I could channel that energy into much more productive avenues, um, which is why I've become such a, like, such a, I'm such a proponent for anything that's going to help people do something better, whether that is using a wheelchair so you have increased mobility um, or, I mean, for me, using my wheelchair or my ventilator um, or a digital magnifier, like that's no different to me than somebody wearing glasses, which is a totally, I know I, it blows my mind that like we see glasses as totally normal. Yeah. Um, all three of us in this room right now are wearing glasses. <laughs> and, but when, if somebody walked in this room right now, they wouldn't see like three people with visual impairments or three people who need glasses, they would see two able-bodied people in a girl in a wheelchair. Yeah. And so it just, it, it blows my mind that like, it's, it's a, it's an adaptive tool just like glasses are, but be, I guess it's because less of our society needs them somehow. Things like wheelchairs and crutches um, and anything that looks atypical um, has gotten that stereotype about it, that it's things that should be avoided um, and yeah, so I think, I think that was a big thing for me, um, is going so long without those, um, aids really taught me the value of them. Yeah. Um, and so when I hear about kids, like not wanting to use assistive aids and stuff like that, like I get it from the social aspect. Um, but at the same time, it's like, but it'll help them so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, in the... Back to the medical realm, um, 
one of the big issues that I faced, um, especially since we didn't really start looking for answers much um, until my teenage years, was... Did you have any, you know, diagnoses before then? No. Um, oh, they were just like, something's going on bas- here. Yeah, they... Um, yeah, they basically realized, like, they told my parents that I had a severe visual impairment. Um, I actually had an eye surgery on my first birthday. Um, and, but other than that, they were like, we, like, I had a, I had a developmental delay. Um, so just like I, just like I had that period of, um, delayed or stunted growth in utero, I had a similar period in infancy. Um, so I mentioned there's not many pictures of me before about 18 months. There's actually that with the exception of a couple pictures from around my first birthday, there's one picture that we know of before my first birthday, and that's when I'm six months old. Um, and then there's another picture of me that's exactly a year later at 18 months. Um, and in those two pictures, I'm the exact same size, wearing the exact same outfit. Wow. The only difference is that in, at six months, I'm seated in an infant car carrier. And at 18 months, I was able to like prop myself up against the car carrier to like stand up holding onto it um so which which is very scary yeah um but it's sort of crazy to think that like now you're a normal sized person like you're yeah pretty much like you you caught up at some (laughs) point (laughs) um yeah and so you're kind of short i guess yeah (laughs) i'm i'm 410 um so i'm definitely on the shorter side but within the realms of average yeah <laughs> um so and like but other than that like I seemed like I hit all of the de- developmental markers I just hit them later um and I started reading when I was three like there wasn't anything atypical cognitively I wasn't really having a lot of health issues as a as a young child um so they kind of just told my parents well she's blind and she had a developmental delay that she'll probably just grow out of um and that was basically what my parents went with until um as I said as a teenager when I really started noticing the um the the balance and coordination issues and stuff like that that I'd had really my whole life I was finally old enough to like really realize that this isn't normal um and Unfortunately, because we didn't really start looking for answers until I was older, um, I had the advantage of being able to tell doctors like exactly what I felt and exactly what I felt was wrong with me. Um, but a lot of doctors didn't believe me. Um, they either thought that I was making things up entirely or that I was just exaggerating it, um, that I was just seeking attention and... Um, so a lot of doctors just wouldn't even take it seriously. Um, and then when I came to college, um, so as part of my condition, I actually have an immunodeficiency. Um, so I get sick really easily. Um, and most people, um, once you've been exposed to a particular illness, your body remembers that. And so if you're exposed to it again, your body can quickly pull up its defenses and you usually don't get the exact same 
virus or the exact same illness twice. Um, but the immunodeficiency that I have specifically um, is a deficiency in that. Um, so I can get the same illnesses over and over and over again. Um, and my body just, every time I'm exposed to anything, no matter how many times I've had it, my body thinks it's something brand new and has no idea what to do. Um, and so, so does that mean that you also can't get most vaccines? Um, I cannot get any live virus vaccines, Uh um, which is like, um, and I also have to be really careful around kids who have recently gotten live virus vaccines. Oh, wow. Um, um, so with a live virus vaccine, um, or an attenuated, which is like weakened, um, which is what they are, it's, um. The two most common ones of those that we use right now are the MMR and the chickenpox vaccines. Um, most other vaccines are dead or inactivated, um, which I can get. Um, and I usually do, like I still get a flu shot and uh, pneumonia vaccines and stuff like that. Um, basically because in case it gets even the tiniest little mm-hmm. um, help in there, Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I can't get any live virus vaccines. And, um, so kids for a couple weeks after getting a live virus vaccine, um, they can shed very minute, um, amounts of the virus and it's not enough. It's not enough to get any typical, any person with a typical immune system is not going to even slightly have a risk of getting sick from that. Um, but someone like me who has a weakened immune system, um, not a compromised immune system, um, is that it basically, it takes much less of the virus to get someone like me sick. Um, and that's why on some of the like, um, commercials for different drugs, um, some of them say like, talk to your doctor if you're planning or someone in your family is planning to get a vaccine. Um, that's why, because it's probably a drug that affects the immune system, and it's probably something that makes you vulnerable to a live virus vaccine. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I have to, I have to do a lot of research before any medical things, mm-hmm. but. I want to go back to talking about, uh, your teenage years mm-hmm. when the doctors sort of didn't believe you or thought you were making it up, um. And so this is just sort of a guess, um, but I want to know what you think. Do you think that that had anything to do with misogyny? Like, do you think that there's a pretty big intersection there between doctors not taking women seriously generally and doctors not taking disabled people seriously generally? And then that combination could make it even worse for Mm -hmm. a young woman who has disabilities? Yeah, um... I'm not sure about the mm-hmm. um, sex issue. I think that it definitely could be. Um, but I even had some f- some female doctors yeah. that um, were not taking it seriously. Um, so I think the I think the gender or the sex thing could have been an issue. Um, I mean, it's it's hard because I only have the one experience. Yeah. So I don't really have. I don't have a close male friend with a similar situation to compare it to. Um, But I do think that definitely the disability issue, um, because even 
So because of the weakened immune system, when I came to college and was living in the dorm, I was sick constantly. Um, and I was constantly going into like the walk-in clinic, urgent care. And they just, they just eventually just started blowing me off because like they told me that there was no reason that a, um, that a healthy 20 year old should have as many medical problems as I had. And I would look at them and be like, exactly, which is why I think there's something more going on. But instead of realizing, like, there's no reason a healthy 20-year-old should have these many problems, maybe we should look to see what's going on that's not healthy or typical. They were just like, this doesn't happen to healthy people your age. You must be making it up. And so, I mean, and I, I've had a lot of, I've, there are a lot of really good doctors out there. Um, so I don't want to like paint this horrible picture of everybody yeah. in the medical profession. Um, because like the medical team I have now, I love them and they are outstanding and they take every little thing as, as seriously as they need to. Um, and I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think especially with that adolescent young adult, there's such a, I think there's such a stigma just around that like age group mm -hmm. um that we are seeking attention and just like that we don't i don't know that we're not able to really know what's going on in our bodies which is weird because like there's also groups that are advocating that adolescent girls should be able to get an abortion or um abort-efficient birth control and stuff like that without parental consent. But then if that same 15 or 16-year-old girl were to go to the doctor and be like, hey, I think I'm having this neurological issue, they'd be like, oh, no, you don't know what that is. You don't know what you're talking about. So it just, there's such this, like, uh, I don't know, I guess divide in the mm -hmm. medical field where it's like, Half the time we think adolescents are totally irresponsible and they must be making things up. They don't know what they're talking about. They're not trustworthy. But then with other decisions, we're like, oh, yeah, let them do whatever yeah, they want. Ahead. They're fine. Yeah. They can figure it out. Yeah. They're strong, independent women. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now I want to move on to something you mentioned in the beginning, um, which is end of life issues. Uh, because I know for me, we're around the same age. And I don't consider end of life issues for myself at any point. Like that is not, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe in 50 years, if I'm still here, I'll start caring about that. Um, obviously from an advocacy sense, I care, but um, yeah. for myself, I don't, it's not even on my radar. What is that like for you? Um, at this point, it's kind of like a lot of the other stuff for me. It's, it's, it, uh, for me, it's normal to have a conversation about death and end-of-life things. Um, but I realized that it's not. Um, and that's something that I really wish our culture was more willing to talk about. Um, because both as somebody who has what is considered a... Um, I just lost the word for it. Life-limiting. Life yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Life-limiting condition. Yes, um, which is basically the term they use for something that is expected to 
expected to shorten your life expectancy, but not expected to kill you within six months. Okay. Um, there's not like a hard and fast rule for terminal in the medical literature, but generally it's not used until you're expected to be within six months of passing. So anything that's, we expect you to live at least six months, but we don't know how much longer after that. Um, they use life-limiting condition. Um, and But, I mean, you were told that when you were a couple months old, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so... But... So as somebody with a life-limiting, life quote, condition, and someone who has lost a close family member, like, I need to talk about death. I need to talk about end-of-life choices because I need to be able to work through those things. Mm -hmm. um, it's impossible to work through the grief and the loss of a loved one and not talk about death. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, like, I have very much come to terms with my own mortality. Um, and I've realized that that's not a typical thing for a 26-year-old. Um, but like, for me, I'm not afraid of dying. I don't want it to happen anytime soon because I love my life. And I think that I still have a lot of work to do here. Um, but death doesn't like, it doesn't scare me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not something that I'm afraid or even uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and honestly, I've kind of made it my mission to like talk about death and disability as much as possible because there are two things and I think part of the reason that both of them have so much stigma around them is because we've made them like such taboo topics and nobody wants to talk about death nobody wants to talk about disability but I mean they're totally normal parts of life we are spoiler alert we're all going to die like um some of us, it might be sooner than others, um, but I mean, tragically, people our age pass away all the time in accidents, in crazy acts of violence that we're seeing. Like, it's it's awful, but it's not unheard of or even really uncommon for for someone our age to die. Um, but it's it's much rarer for somebody to kind of have a condition like mine where like you don't expect to reach um like older adulthood um but for me I've been able to plan that and work through that um and I have a very detailed advanced directive um that I've gone through um I've talked to a very close friend who is my healthcare proxy. So if um, I'm ever incapacitated to the point that I can't express my own decisions, she knows what I want for end of health, end of life care. Um, and she's able to step in and say that most of it is written ex ex very explicitly in my advanced directive. I've gone over it with my primary care doctor um, and Basically, for me, my plan is that I'm going to keep going and keep fighting um, for absolutely as long as I can. Um, and when I get to the point that physically my body can't fight anymore, um, 
then I'm going, like, I can accept that. Um, and I will accept measures in the end of my life to make me as comfortable as possible. I am a huge advocate for palliative care, hospice care. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's really important because I think that... Um, Rehumanize International obviously opposes euthanasia mm -hmm. and assisted suicide and things like that. Um, and I think that often gets conflated with palliative care. Yes. Like, because I don't think that doctors should kill their patients, I think that they shouldn't even treat their pain, which I think is completely ridiculous. Yeah. And of course not, um, not the message that we have. Um, but I think that that means because of that misconception that means that we do need to be more proactive mm -hmm. in our support for things like palliative care and other uh pain relieving it's things it's kind of funny because i actually um between trains yesterday i was actually um talking with a physician over lunch um and i was talking about like why i was coming up here for the um board retreat and stuff like that and um, so she was asking me about the organization and I, I told her, you know, we're a human rights organization and the some of the different things that we oppose. And I've mentioned opposing abortion, euthanasia and physician assisted suicide. And she was kind of like, <laughs> I was lying. <laughs> um, and, but we got to the point, like we started defining the terms, um, and like, when I explained that, like, I view euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide as, like, intentional, deliberate acts taken to end a life. Um, like, there is a huge difference in my mind between a person who is in the last days of their life and is just in tremendous amounts of pain and they need a larger-than-standard dose of morphine to make them comfortable Anytime you give a larger dose of morphine, you're risking respiratory suppression. You're risking mm -hmm. the chance that that might hasten their death. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the intention. But exactly. There's a huge difference between giving that larger dose of morphine to relieve the pain, knowing that there's a chance that it will shorten the life, and giving them a large enough dose of morphine that you know it's going to kill them with the intention of ending their life. Yeah. There's... A huge difference there um and we walked through that with my mom um she um had severe seizures and was in and out of the icu for the last six months of her life um and then she ended up having a brain bleed and was never really fully conscious again after that um and we brought her home on palliative care um and the doctors told us at that point that they said that they would be surprised if she um, hung on for 24 to 48 hours after that. So we figured we would go home, we'd have a day with, a day or two with her to say, like to say our goodbyes. Um, but she hung on for two weeks. And for me, like, I will always treasure that time because for two weeks I got to show my mom that tender love and care that she had given me my whole life. Um, and those are two of the hardest weeks of my life. Um, and I mean, I would be lying if there, if I said like there weren't times that it crossed my mind, like wouldn't like, 
wouldn't it be better if this was just over? But at the same time, like, I knew that it wasn't. Like, I knew she has the same right to her life. And basically what I told everybody at that point was I'm going to fight for her as long as she's willing to fight because that's what she did for me. Um, and so I did, I, I cared for her for the last couple of weeks of her life. Um, and that included giving her morphine every two to three hours. Um, because at that point, basically the only thing that she could express at that point, basically the only like expressive reflexes left were pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we could tell when she was getting um, irritated because she would start to like kind of scowl. And so like as soon as she started to show any sign of pain, we would give her more morphine, even though like that kept her very sedated. Um, we knew that there was no chance of her regaining consciousness. And so we didn't want any awareness to be pain. Um, but yeah, I... I treasure those last couple weeks that we had with her. Um, and I hope that if I'm in that same situation, that someone will be there and be treasuring those last weeks with me. Um, so, yeah, I definitely, we, we hear all the time the concept of mercy killings and death with dignity. And I hate that term. There is nothing dignified about death. Like, yes, it's something that's all going to happen. Like, all of us are going to die. All of our bodies are going to deteriorate to the point that they can't exist in this world anymore. And for some of us, that's going to happen in the blink of an eye in an accident. Um, for some of us, it may take weeks, months, or even years uh, of the body slowly breaking down. Um, but neither of those is dignified, like neither of those is better than the other. Um, there's, there's not a good way to die. Um, there is a good way to live. Um, and I think that is by being loved and loving others. Um, and we can do that until the very last second that we have here by trying to minimize pain, but not by inflicting death. No. Now, I think that the, um, the last few questions that I want to ask you um, are a little bit more positive than what we've been talking <laughs> about. Um, and may maybe not, we'll see. Um, <laughs> Uh, I just want to know, uh, because you are, I think, an excellent self-advocate. You know, you go out and you speak places and um, you write online and you do a bunch of wonderful stuff. Um, and I just want to hear some of the pros and cons of sort of doing this work for yourself mm -hmm. and people like you. Because I think that, um, for example, those of us who fight against abortion, like, I'm, I'm not at risk of getting aborted anytime soon. Um, but with disability issues, it, it, it is your life on the mm -hmm. line in some ways. And I just kind of want to know what that is like as yeah. an activist. Um, 
I guess a couple of the pros that I see is, I mean, for me, I... Okay, so I hesitate to say that it gives, like, my suffering meaning because that implies that I think I'm suffering and I don't. <laughs> um, but, I mean, part of my condition is that I do struggle with chronic pain. Um, and oftentimes it's a very severe chronic pain. Um, and so, yeah, there are, there are days when, like, I wonder, like, why am I going through this? Why do I have to deal with this? Um, and so for me being able to be out there and advocating for myself and others as well. For me, um, does very much help to give me a reason so that on those bad days when I'm like, why do I put up with this? I, I know that it's because I have a purpose and I'm doing good for myself and for others. Um, and there are people whose disabilities prevent them from physically being able to speak for themselves um and so I consider it an honor to be able to be a voice for them and with them um I also for me um one of the hardest things about not like realizing my disability younger um was I was not ever like it wasn't until my adult years that I was embraced in the disability community and started meeting others with disabilities. Um, and so, like, as a kid, um, being blind, having the um, physical mobility issues that I had, like, I never had an adult in my life who had those same challenges that I could look up to. Um, and so that's kind of been, like, my one goal ever since I was a teenager was... I wanted to be for kids what I didn't have as a kid. I wanted to be that adult that was thriving and successful, even if that wasn't in the way that our culture usually thinks of it with like wealth and stuff like that. But somebody who was out there making a difference, showing that you could live a good and happy and prosperous life, um, even with a disability. And so I love when I get to meet others with disabilities, whether they're similar to mine or not, um, just being able to show them like it's this, like it's not, a disability is not a death sentence. Um, and it doesn't mean like, yes, there are things that I'm not going to be able to do, like drive a car. Mm -hmm. um, I can't drive a car either. None of us want me trying to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't independently travel um, and get where I need to go. Um, and I mean, I just came by myself from Virginia to Pittsburgh um, and I've done it before. Um, and so there's a big difference between realizing that there are specific actions that you can't do because of your disability and realizing that there are like actual life functions. Like driving is not a life function, it's a task. Being able to travel and commute, that's a function mm -hmm. that you have to be able to do. Um, and there are ways to do that without the task of driving. Um, and so really being able to be that role model is definitely for me a huge pro. Um, 
I think this is probably the first time that I've ever been asked the cons mm-hmm. of being a self-advocate. Um, and probably the primary one that I see is I get labeled like grumpy and angry all the time. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um, or entitled. Um, really? The number of times that I have told, been told that I have an entitlement attitude when I talk about the need for accessibility and accommodations, um, like advocating for, um, you know, like ramps that are actually not too steep for a manual wheelchair to go up, um, or um, just access to alternate formats of, um, like textbooks, and that's becoming much less finishing now that like electronic textbooks and stuff are becoming more normalized. Um, but a lot of times, and this is why I love being a self-advocate, but why I need my able-bodied friends to stand with me in the fight for disability is because so often when I'm like, that bathroom's not accessible or this building doesn't have a ramp or that elevator's broken. People are just like, why don't you find something positive? Or, um, <laughs> or like when there's a building, like there are buildings that are built on like hills. And so there's a entrance, like an accessible entrance on both levels, but you can't get from one level to the other inside accessibly. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I can't tell you the number of times when I've been like, this building needs an elevator. And people are like, well, why not? You can just go outside and go around and come in down at the bottom. And it, it's just, yeah. So a lot of times when, when I'm talking about a need that is for me, a lot of people see me as like, I'm doing it selfishly and I'm needy and just grumpy and entitled. Um, and so it's, it's different when I point out that like, hey, that video didn't have closed captionings for my friend who's deaf. Mm-hmm. Um, or when my able-bodied friend who is with me is like, goes and tells somebody that, hey, the elevator is broken and my friend can't go down, um, downstairs with me. Um, I, I don't want to like... It's not that people with disabilities can't advocate for themselves. And I think that we, I think that we can, and I think that we have to. Um, But because of the, just the stigma around disability, we need a united front. And we don't need, we don't need any able-bodied person to be a voice for us, but we do need you to stand with us and join with us to make our voices louder. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I think that's definitely one of the cons that having a disability and fighting for disability rights, it's often perceived kind of as like a, a selfish um, goal, which, yeah. It's wild. Yeah. I hate that word entitled. I hate the way people oh, yeah. use it. Because when I hear that, it's like, yeah, I think my friends are entitled to be able to go to the bathroom. Exactly. Like, yeah. Like, Millennials are so entitled. They want health care. It's like, yeah, I, I, I feel entitled to be able to live. Exactly. <laughs> maybe maybe that's asking too much. Yeah, I, I, I would not think that that would be a con, but that, that makes a lot of sense. I can see um, 
certain people viewing you as selfish or entitled for wanting to get around the world. <laughs> um, and then lastly, I just wanted to know, do you have any advice um, for others who are disabled or otherwise um, for getting involved in advocacy around these issues? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for people with disabilities, the the first step is really just learning to be that self-advocate um, and learning to stand up and use your voice. Um, there are so many times when we, as people with disabilities, we just, we don't want to rock the boat. Like we, we don't want to be viewed as entitled and selfish. Um, we don't want to have to fight for access. Um, and I've literally seen peers drop out of college because it was easier to give up on their dream and go to a trade school and just get some sort and not I'm, I'm not there's absolutely nothing wrong with going to a trade school and getting some sort of career like that um but these are people who had people people who had dreamed of being teachers and writers and um and they went to college and they they didn't know how to advocate. They did not know how to go to the professor and ask for accommodations. Um, there are people all the time who um, just, they'll see something, even if it's something that affects them, um, they will learn to cope with it. Um, instead of having to speak out. Um, The problem with that, that's often, so often in our society, we're like, yeah, good for them, being adaptable, not not letting that stand in their way. Um, But when we don't stand up um, for those little, even the little things, it makes it harder for the people that come after us. Because, so, like for example, I can walk short distances with crutches. Um, with extreme help, I can do a couple steps. Um, and so for me, um, you know, a, a building having one step up, a public building having like one step up into it wouldn't necessarily, and would make it much more difficult for me to get into the building, but it wouldn't, like totally exclude me from it. If I if I really needed to get in there, mm-hmm. I could. Um, but if I just take that step and don't do anything about it, um, then the next person who comes behind me who can't take that step, um, they're then seen as being, it makes it even more of that like, entitlement selfish when they point it out because they're like oh well beth came in here and she Mm -hmm. like she has a physical disability too like why why like she was fine with it why are you being so needy um and so a lot of times it's even just standing up for the little things like that that like you can do even though they're hard um you shouldn't have to do exactly um when you when you just tolerate the system as it is it makes it even harder for the people who come after you. 
Um, so definitely for people with disabilities, the first step to being an activist or an advocate is learning to be your own self-advocate um, and just remembering that you do have a voice and that no matter what people tell you, like you have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and letting that just embracing your disability um, and not being afraid of the word disability. Um, there's so much stigma around that and we treat it as such a negative thing. Yeah, um, that's, that's another thing I wanted to get into that I forgot to ask about. Um, the language around disability, because <laughs> I know I, I feel like every day I'm told a different thing that I'm supposed to say. Um, and I, I often feel like I'm not exactly sure how to navigate these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, I think I, I have enough disabled friends that I sort of speak differently depending on who I'm with because they have different opinions. Um, so I wanted to know your opinion on that, you okay. know, disabled person or person with disability. Mm -hmm. or it, Sometimes it depends on the specific condition. Yeah, I think what you were just saying about like, it changing and using different things with different people. That's, I mean, that's the primary thing that I emphasize to people is like the, the politically correct mantra is to use what's called person first language. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, a person with a disability, a, a person who uses a wheelchair, a person who is blind, um, a person with autism. Um, but in everyday conversation, like, Nobody want, I don't ever say I am a person who is blind. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have enough hours in my day to use person-first language mm -hmm. all the time. So I refer to myself as a blind wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. There's no person adjective, I guess, user. Yeah. Um, um, but so really a lot of it is deferring to the person. Um, don't ever tell somebody with a disability unless they unless you know that they are intentionally putting themselves down, then definitely be like, you shouldn't put yourself down like that. But otherwise, like, don't correct a person with the disabilities, don't correct their language. Um, if somebody's saying that they are a blind person, don't be like, oh, you should be using person first language. <laughs> um, which yes, people have done. Nice. Um, so for me, I do a lot of research and academic writing. Um, and so whenever I'm doing anything from a professional standpoint, I try to be very conscious about using person-first language um, because I think it's important for our society to see the person first, which is mm -hmm. the intention of person-first language. Yeah. To rehumanize. Exactly. Um, but in my personal life, I have no problem with the adjective coming first. Yeah. Because um, that's all it is to me is mm -hmm. it's an adjective just like I am a female person. I am a blind person. Um, I guess the difference is like I'm a person with brown hair. I guess brown-haired person. Yeah. Um, it just yeah. You could call me a redhead, and I wouldn't be offended. Yeah, exactly. Not a person with red hair. Yeah. Not that red hair is a disability, but feels like that sometimes. But exactly, <laughs> it's it's a physical characteristic, yeah. just like um, my blindness or my respiratory issues, um, and. For me, like, that's the thing. Like, it's about getting society to see disability just as a physical characteristic and not as a negative physical characteristic. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, definitely deferring to the person. Um, 
for me personally, um, I don't like euphemisms. So I don't like things like special needs. Um, differently abled. I, I hate differently abled. Like differently abled is like saying we're all special, which it's not wrong. Yeah, it's true. But it's like, yes, I'm differently abled. Everybody is differently abled. That's what makes us human. Like how boring would it be if we weren't differently abled? But like, abled. exactly. So for me, it's not that there's necessarily something wrong with it. Um, I, I have people that I love very much and they, they like the term special needs and that, that's fine. That's, that's their right to use that language. Um, but for me, I try to be very intentional about either saying disability or naming the disability specifically when possible. Mm -hmm. um, because for me, a big part of my goal, like I said earlier, is to try to fight the stigma and try to normalize the conversation about death and disability. And we can't do that if we're constantly using euphemisms like special needs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, do, I do try to be very intentional about that. Um, but I don't, for me, it's, it's, if you're not like trying to be offensive or being extremely patronizing, um, it's hard to offend me. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're, if you are genuinely being helpful, genuinely being a caring person, um, I'm not likely to get offended by your language choice. I might tell you, Hey, I would like, I would rather you use this or I'd rather you not say that. But, and in my personal experience, I mean, some people with disabilities are just jerks and they're going to get offended no matter what you say. So there's, you know, there's that. <laughs> which is also another huge stereotype like people with disabilities are not like inherently innocent kind people oh like, i believe that <laughs> <laughs> like having a dis yeah you can you can have a disability and still be a jerk like they're not mutually exclusive um so yeah there are That's some the message of the podcast. <laughs> people with disabilities are the worst <laughs> thanks for tuning in <laughs> But I mean, we're just, we're normal people. Yeah. And so. You can be a jerk just like anyone else. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so most people, um, they're not going to get offended if you don't use their preferred language, at least the first time that you use it. If they, now, if I've, if I've told you over and over again that I don't like differently abled and you're constantly introducing me as your dis differently yeah. abled friend, I'm going to be like, Herb, you got to stop It's driving me crazy. Like, um, but like, there's, there's a big difference between refusing to use somebody's preferred language and not using the preferred language the first time you're talking with them or even occasionally because you've slipped up and you forgot. Um, like there's, there's that intentionality, at least to me, is really the difference. If you're using, if you're using blind as a derogatory term um or um i can't even really think of another one that i guess even like handicapped like handicaps not something that i use very often um it's really just a term that's not like it's not really in favor it's not something that people use a whole lot i don't know for me handicap carries a different connotation than disability and so i don't 
like it because if I to me, even though the word disability like literally means like lack of ability, for me like it's less derogatory like like for me handicap means like is worse. Um, I'd rather someone you use disabled than handicapped. But if you're using handicap just as a synonym for disability with with perfectly good intentions, that's fine. Mm -hmm. If you're using handicapped as a derogatory, like, I don't, I, I don't, in my mind, I can't even think of a derogatory way to use it, but um, I'm, I'm sure you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, the intention behind your words, at least in my view, matters a lot more than the actual words themselves. That makes sense. And I do think, like you were saying, it is very different for, you know, everyone mm -hmm. who... Um, is a person with a disability um, and I think that going back to that just like just ask most people will be fine with it um, mm -hmm. I know for me like I would rather someone ask me something than just assume mm -hmm. and then go on and potentially say something offensive and um, honestly that's I mean yeah for I mean for almost any life characteristics but there are so many I've I realize that when I am rolling down the street, I don't look like your typical community member. Like, mm -hmm. I have a wheelchair, I have a cane, I have a ventilator on my, like, some of my backpacks, you can't really see what it is. So I just have this, like, tube that I'm, like, mm -hmm. taking hits off of. Like, you don't know what it is. <laughs> um, um, and so, like, I, I get that there are questions, but I would much rather someone just come up and ask me a question. Um, I say that with the caveat of, especially if it's somebody you don't know well. Yeah, yeah. ask a question if you need to. Exactly, ask a question if you need to. What's going on there? Exactly. <laughs> um, respect the person's um, right and freedom to say they'd rather not talk about it right now. Um, but for most people with disabilities, especially if there's somebody that you're getting to know and you're like, Hey, I'm curious. Like people ask me all the time, like, with like, if I can see something because it's farther away, and like I have no no problem with that at all. Um, and I I don't have a problem explaining why I have the ventilator and things like that. I don't mind talking about it. Um, I I don't love when some random person. What I what I can't stand is when somebody sees me and they're like my grandma's in a wheelchair. It's like, <laughs> that's great. My uncle has red hair. Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know why when we see somebody with disability, yeah. I think, I think it's an attempt to like empathize and like show, like, I think it, I think it originally comes from a good intention, but like, but it's weird. There are yeah. so many better ways to make common ground with somebody with a disability <laughs> than like, naming some extended family member that you have that has a potentially similar disability. Um, so yeah, find that common ground other than some random person, you know, with a disability. Um, don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Cool. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I mean, I think for me, the main thing, um, we've kind of already talked on it, but it really just goes back to rehumanizes like core mission. And that is, like, if you are respecting the person, um, then 
you you may still your actions may not always be perfect they may not always be perceived perfectly um but if you're acting out of respect for the person you're going to respect their life um even if it's one that one that from the outside doesn't look typical or even look really pleasant um if you're respecting the person and recognizing them as a human um, and seeking to treat them as a fellow human and fellow person, um, a lot of these issues are just going to kind of follow into place. Um, so people with disabilities definitely have different struggles. Um, we face different challenges in medicine. Um, we face different challenges in life. But we are all still just people who just the end of the day, we want to be loved and respected, just like everybody else. Well, thank you for coming on, Beth. It's lovely to speak to you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 6 of the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.